Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Hey, good morning, and welcome to the Grove, and welcome to Church Online. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whether this is your first time with us or you call this place home, we're so glad that you are with us today. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here. Now, this morning, we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells. And this story he tells is about two people. One's good, one's bad, and one's ugly. Now, if you're doing the math at home, you know that that doesn't add up, but that's precisely the point of the story that Jesus tells. Now, the good, the bad, the ugly is clearly lifted from the title of the Clint Eastwood movie of the same name, the 1966 Spaghetti Western. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. And what I think is interesting about the good, the bad, and the ugly as a movie is what it did for the category and the way that we understood how Westerns worked. Now, if you're not familiar with Western movies or that's not your cup of tea, just hang with me. This will make sense. Now, the way that you know, Westerns previous to the good, the bad, the ugly and other movies like it, the way that they worked is they pit somebody who was good versus somebody who was bad. And this was clearly identifiable to the audience, to the viewer. It was easy to understand who the good guy was. Typically, they were the handsome one, the, the attractive one, the one who wore the white hat and the clean clothes, nice, bright white smile. And then the bad guy would be the person with the mangy beard or the black hat or the eye patch. And so it was very clear just by viewing that who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. Now, if you're not familiar with this concept in Westerns, clearly you understand this in the movie Star Wars. Now, Star Wars was pitched as a Western set in space. So you have the good guy. You have Luke Skywalker. What color does he wear? He wears white, light-colored clothing. And then you have the bad guy. You have Darth Vader. What color clothing does he wear? He wears black. And if those indicators weren't enough, anytime Darth Vader showed up on the scene to make sure that you understood that he was the bad guy, you would hear the Darth Vader Imperial March. Dum, 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 dum. This ominous foreboding music so that there was no uncertainty left as to who was good and who was bad. But enter the good, the bad, and the ugly as a movie. And what it did is it began to blur the classifications and the simple categories of good and bad. You had the emergence of kind of what's called the anti-hero. And so you have these three main characters in this story who nobody's really that good and everybody's a bit bad. And so it became a little bit unclear who you were supposed to root for and did you actually even like the person that you were rooting for in the story? And what it did is it introduced this whole new way of communicating a story to people that added nuance and complexity. And for me, I think interest, and I find them a little bit more engaging. Those are typically my favorite types of movies where I'm not really sure who the good guy is. I'm not really sure who the bad guy is. Is there going to be some big twist or surprise reveal at the end of the movie? And the people who I thought were good and bad aren't actually good and bad, and it's flip-flopped or whatever it is. Now, what makes for interesting movies creates confusion and problems in our own life. See, we like the way our life works where there are simple categories of good and bad, people in white hats and people in black hats. We like these clean categories, but 
unfortunately, that's not actually how life works. And if you're like me, it seems like when I look around the world and I pay attention to the news and to social media and I have conversations with friends and family members, it seems like more and more and more these categories and classifications of who's good and who's bad, who's right and who's wrong are increasingly blurred. And so it becomes far more confusing to kind of understand and differentiate between who's doing the right thing or who's doing the wrong thing, who's good, who's bad. It's all very confusing. Now, this creates a problem for us because we all want to be right. We all want to live in a way that is filled with right choices. Now, the difference comes between where we look to define what right and wrong is, but many of us would kind of raise our hand and self-identify that, no, we intentionally try to avoid anything that we deem as wrong. We don't naturally gravitate towards wrong choices. We do what we think is right in our own eyes. Now, sometimes that's informed by our social circles. Sometimes that's informed by our culture. Sometimes that's informed by popular opinion in the moment. And sometimes that's informed by maybe a faith or belief system. But ultimately, we are constantly scanning the world, looking for indications of whether or not how we're living is right or wrong. Do we have on the white hat or do we have on the black hat? But as these categories become blurred and unclear, it becomes increasingly more difficult for us to get a strong sense of whether or not we're living the right way, whether we're living in a righteous way, a way filled with rightness, a way that's marked by and characterized by a consistency and a pattern of right choices all throughout our life. Now, righteousness is kind of a term that we often associate with, you know, scripture or faith or God, but it's not limited to that. There can be all sorts of righteousness out in the world. It just depends on what you're viewing as your ultimate source and ultimate guide of truth as what defines those right choices. So take, for example, if in your world, in your business, in your field or expertise, if rightness is defined by profitability as success, as achievement, if it's defined by career advancement, if it is defined by prosperity, then the choices that you make that are right or wrong will be aligned with whatever is the ultimate truth or the ultimate guide for what life is supposed to look like. Look at another category. If if your understanding of what's right and wrong and righteousness is defined by how well your kids do in their life, how successful they are as people, what schools they get into, the type of grades that they make, the teams that they get on, then all of the choices that you navigate through in your daily life and the choices that you help guide your children through are going to be aligned with those categories of right and wrong as defined by what ultimate righteousness looks like, the ultimate truth that governs in you know, kind of oversees those set of choices. Now, here's, here's the problem. We're constantly looking for justification, for a sense of assurance that the way that we're living is right or wrong. But because we can be swayed by different opinions and different perspectives of what righteousness looks like, we can often end up with the wrong righteousness. Now, People of faith or people who profess to follow Jesus, I believe that there is one, should be one source of righteousness in our lives. 
and that's God. But the reality is, for so many of us, we, we lean towards, we gravitate towards, we become influenced by the righteousness that we find all around us. Public opinion, popular opinion, our culture, our social group, our friend circle, our families, our parents, our relationships, all of these influence our understanding of what righteousness means. And when they do that, it can often lead us to the wrong kind of righteousness. And when we have the wrong kind of righteousness, it leads us into a place that ultimately doesn't go well. It creates problems in our own lives and takes us away from God. And this is exactly what we see in the story that Jesus tells this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke will be in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in the 18th chapter, and we're going to be starting with verse 9. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you'll open them and read through this with us. And if you don't, um, you can also use, if, if you're on our platform, you can use the little Bible tab. So click the Bible tab and then select the Gospel of Luke, and then select chapter 18, starting with verse 9. The translation that I'm going to be reading out of is the CEB, that is the Common English Bible. So I'll give you a moment to find all that, to get all that situated, maybe run and grab a quick cup of coffee, whatever you got to do. But let's get to Luke 18, and we will jump into this story. Now remember, Jesus tells a story about two men, one good, one bad, and one ugly. Now let's see is as we read along if you can figure out, if you can differentiate who's who. Starting in verse 9, chapter 18. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous. Now as we talked about just a second ago, I think that is the natural gravitational pull for all of our lives. We get to a place where we convince ourselves of our own righteousness. We look and examine our lives, the choices that we make, and based on our understanding of what's right and wrong, we find our own sense of justification that we are living a righteous life. We all would kind of speak highly of the choices we make. Most of us agree with the way that we're living our lives because why wouldn't we? Because that's the way that we choose to live our lives. And so the choices that we make are a reflection of our sense of what we think is right and wrong. And so we all naturally gravitate towards this place of self-justification. We're all people who are convinced that the way that we live and who we are is righteous people. But here's a problem when our righteousness comes from our own sense of self-justification. When we deem for ourselves that we're righteous, this is often what happens. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. You see, the way that righteousness as defined by the individual works is it works in relationship to and in juxtaposition to somebody else. We need a white hat and we need a black hat. That's how we know the white hat's good because the black hat is clearly bad. And so as we start to define ourselves and identify ourselves with people who are righteous, 
it means that then there are also people who, if they're not doing what we're doing or living the way that we're living or believe the things that we believe or vote the way that we vote or spend our money the way that we spend our money or don't spend our money the way that we spend our money or hang out in certain places or don't go out to certain places or stay at home or wear masks or don't wear masks or any of the ways that we evaluate our own self-righteousness, uh, then there are clearly people who, if they don't do those things, then they're not righteous. They're wrong. They're bad. They're the people in the black hats. And we look down on them. We look at them with disgust, with contempt. We belittle them. We dehumanize them. We think of them as less than or inferior or dumb or stupid or you know, irresponsible. We have all sorts of labels and judgments for the type of people who don't live the way that we're living. Why? Because everyone is right. All of our actions are right in our own eyes. And it leads to this place where we have the good and we have the bad. And I've never identified or met someone who self-identifies as, yeah, I clearly, I'm, I'm in the bad hat. Like, I, I never do right things. I only do the wrong things. No, no, no. Even if I don't agree with their sense of right and wrong, everybody chooses to live in a way that they believe that they're right in their eyes. But when we do this, our righteousness is then based on our own actions, our own sense of assurance, our own justification. And it creates this dichotomy between people who are like us, who are the good, who are the righteous, and the people who are unlike us, who are the unrighteous, the bad, the wrong, the people who wear the black hats. And Jesus goes up. He says, okay, here the, Jesus tells this story. The gospel writer of Luke says, Jesus tells this story to people who were convinced that they were righteous. They look on everyone else with disgust. And here's the story that Jesus tells. Two people went up to the temple to pray. Now, the temple was a place where, based on who you were and the way that you lived your life, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, clean or unclean, it was abundantly clear where you fell on the righteousness scale. So the more righteous you were, if you were Jewish, male, and clean, and wealthy, you got to be closest to where all of the action was happening in the temple. So the more righteous you were, the closer you got. The less righteous you were, the further away you were from the temple. So this temple was a place where proximity determined righteousness. And so everybody was always acutely aware of who was good and who was bad, of who was right and who was wrong. And so you have these two people who go up to the temple to pray. And one was a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees in that time were the most religious, the most fervent in their belief, the most pious, the ones who did all of the right things. And they wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they did all the right things because it was important to them to be righteous. It was important to them to live a life that was filled with right choices. Right choices as defined by their religion at the time. Now, they're not bad people. They get a bad rap in scripture, but they were really earnest sincere, zealous, committed believers. My guess is we all know people who live that way, who are honest and sincere in the way that they try to live out their faith, the way that they try to follow Jesus. It's just sometimes they do so in a way that is a bit off-putting. And this is what we'll see a little bit later. So you have one Pharisee. That's one of the people. The other, you have a tax collector. Now, this is a perfect juxtaposition because everybody hearing the story would have self-identified with the Pharisee. Well, clearly he's the good guy. Clearly he's the one who's wearing the white hat. He follows all the rules. He does all of the laws. 
He makes all of the right choices, and the tax collector, he clearly is the one who's in the wrong. He's clearly the one in the black hat. He's clearly the person who doesn't do the things that he's supposed to do. He, they were viewed as traitors to kind of the Jewish people because they supported and worked for the Roman government. They were viewed as continuously unclean because of the way that they handled foreign money. And so they were kind of the social outcasts. And so you couldn't have a greater juxtaposition in this story between a Pharisee and between a tax collector. This was the ultimate Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, white hat, black hat. So two people in the story. One's good and one's bad. And as we'll see, one of these people is ugly. So Jesus continues the story. The Pharisee stood, and I love the way that they say this. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words. God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else. And then he goes on to list who those other people are, the everyone else. Crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And he kind of is looking over. You can see this play out. You have two people gathered to pray to God. And the, and the Pharisee stands there and he's like, God, thank you that I'm not like all of these other people. Thank you that I'm not like the crooks or the evildoers or the adulterers or even that awful, terrible, wrongdoing tax collector over there. And then he justifies to himself, but directed towards God, why he's the good guy. I fast twice a week. I fast more than I'm supposed to. I give a tenth of everything I receive, not just what I earn. I, I, I tithe pre-tax, not post-tax. See, I am extra right because I go above and beyond all that's required of me. See, this Pharisee is justifying to himself his own righteousness. Righteousness is in his own eyes as determined by the ways that he follows all of the rules of his faith, by the way that he follows all the rules of his religion. And it causes him not to actually pray to God, but to pray about himself, to self-gratify, to grandstand in a way to make sure that everybody understands, just like he understands, just how righteous he really is. And so that's, that's the good. But then Jesus continues the story. But the tax collector, he has a different approach than the Pharisee. Well, the Pharisee walks right up to the front and prays this about himself. You can see him standing tall and proud. The tax collector, remember, the temple is a place of proximity. The tax collector, he stood at a distance. The tax collector, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to look towards heaven. So you can imagine this contrast between the Pharisee who's proud and, you know, and preening about the way that he does everything right. And then you have this tax collector who stands back little, maybe a little ashamed, you know, humiliated, saddened by the way that he lives his life, acknowledging his lack of rightness in the way that he chooses to live. But he won't even, he won't even look up. He keeps his head down. And rather, instead of boasting and bragging and maybe spreading out, beats his chest. And you can just imagine the emotion and the pain in this prayer. 
instead of one directed towards himself like the Pharisee, about God, thank you, I'm not like these other people. It's, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. This prayer, this acknowledgement that only by the grace of God I go, that God, it's only because of you and your mercy that I could ever be justified. There's no way that in my own choices, in my own behaviors, in the way that I choose to live my life, that I could ever do enough to be right. I'm constantly prone to wander. I'm constantly prone to choosing the wrong path. And so, the God, the only way that I can achieve justification is through, is through your mercy. So, God, please show mercy for me. Give me your mercy and grace, God. I'm someone who continually makes mistakes. I'm continually someone who misses the mark. God, I am a sinner. I get it wrong again and again and again. And God, I need your mercy in this moment. So this is kind of the vignette that Jesus paints. And then he delivers kind of the moral judgment on this. Jesus says, I tell you, this person, the tax collector, he went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. And they say, Stephen, this is a little confusing. And for the listeners of the story, this might have been a little confusing because the Pharisee does everything right. The Pharisee literally is righteous according to the letter of the law. He does all that he's supposed to do and then some. But the problem is the Pharisee's righteousness is self-justified. He doesn't need God's justification. He doesn't need God's grace and mercy in his own life. He's earned it and achieved it of his own merit. That's why his prayer is to himself about himself. God, thank you. It's not really thanking God. It's God, aren't I great because I'm not like all of these other scumbags? What room is there for God in that man's life? What room is there for God in the life of the Pharisee? He's become God. He's become the one who gives justification. He's become the one who has become the arbiter of good and bad, right and wrong, standing and failing. So in this story, you have two people. You have one who's good. You have one who's bad. You have one who lives a life that becomes utterly ugly. A life devoid of God's grace and goodness because he becomes the person who is the supplier of justification and grace. Jesus ends this story and he says, All who lift themselves up will be brought low. And those who make themselves low will be lifted up. And so my question for us this morning is really simple. Do you have the wrong righteousness? Do you have a sense of assurance and justification of your own righteousness because of your relationship with God? Or is it because of all the ways that you do the right things? Who's providing that righteousness? Is it you? Is it your social circle? Are you doing everything that you think the people, the mysterious them that are arbiters of what's right and wrong on social media? Is that how you measure your own sense of righteousness? If you have the right or wrong posts, if you say or don't say the right things, if you align or don't align with the right perspectives and opinions, how are you measuring your righteousness? Is it through your social circle? Is it through your status and standing with them? Through their acknowledgement of your own personal achievement and success? Is it based on the success of your family or your children? Or the lack of mistakes that you make in your own life? How are you evaluating your righteousness? Are you the one who's determining your own righteousness? If so, then you've got the wrong type of righteousness. 
In this story, Jesus is very clear. Righteousness comes from one place. Justification and assurance of that righteousness can only be found in God. Only by acknowledging the way that God's the one who can give us that sense of righteousness. If it's earned by our own merits, then it's self-righteousness. But if, if we acknowledge the ways that we fall short, if we acknowledge the ways that we don't get it right, if we acknowledge the ways that, according to Christ's example, there's continuous work for us to do, then maybe in those moments we experience the same type of justification that the sinner does. When we recognize that our righteousness can only come from God and only through God's mercy and grace, like the line there, but for the grace of God I, I go. If that's the approach that we have, then, then I think we can avoid the ugliness of the way that the Pharisee lives and the ugliness of the self-righteousness. And we can begin to live a life that aligns with Christ that's more humble. See, what makes this a little confusing is just by appearance and on the surface, we naturally would probably identify without all of the details of the story with the way that the Pharisee lives. He does all of the right things according to the rules. And it is clear, according to the rules, as given by the Jewish religion at the time, the tax collector does not do the right things. But I think what Jesus is trying to point out is it is less about how many right or wrong things you do, and it's more about where you're looking to determine your righteousness. When we find our righteousness in God, we recognize that there's never enough that we could do. It doesn't matter how many good deeds we do. There's never enough. And in a way that feels demoralizing because it's like this treadmill that never stops. It's like this goal that we can't ever achieve. But what we realize is, is the grace and the righteousness of God is not something that we can earn. That's why the, the tax collector prays for God's mercy. It's something that's freely given. Now, our response to that grace, our response to that mercy in our lives should be a commitment to trying to live out the righteousness of God, to make the right choices, to do the right things. But it's not because that helps us earn it more, but because that's what living in relationship with God produces in our own life. I know in my own life it's tough to get this right. I struggle with this all of the time. As I've been working through this story, preparing to preach it this morning, I have become utterly convicted of all of the ways that I am self-righteous. It is ugly, and it is gross, and it is so pervasive in my life because I'm trying really hard to make right choices and to live the right way. But when I look to those things as the justification of my righteousness, I miss the point. And so I'm having to relearn this pattern that the tax collector has. It says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I love the line in the song that the band sang before this. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here in humbleness. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. May that be our prayer this morning. May that be the new routine that we adopt in our lives, coming before God and confessing that God, we don't have it all figured out. God, we don't do this right every single time. And that's why we need you, God. God, less of me, more of you. Help me find my righteousness in you, God. Not because of what I've done, 
but because of who God is. And in that way, God's grace can begin to move and shape and change our lives. As we begin to confess the ways that we don't have it all together, it reveals to us more and more ways that we can begin to model and pattern our lives after Jesus. And that's the whole point. Not so that we can become good to earn the righteousness, but because of having received God's righteousness, we can then go out and live a life that acknowledges it, that enjoys it, that celebrates it, and that begins to look more and more like the life and the example of Jesus. So that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would let go of trying to look for the white hats and the black hats, that we would let go of trying to work so hard to ensure our own righteousness, and that we would maybe get down on our knees and come before God and say, God, I confess there's work that I need to do in my life, and God, it's only work that you can do. God, I make mistakes, and I don't get it right, and I need your grace and mercy in my life. God, will you work in me and work through me and help transform me into more like your son? That'd be my prayer for us this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. God, this morning we come before you acknowledging that it is so tempting to try to secure our own righteousness, to try to justify all the ways that we act and live in this world, to alleviate some of the anxiety that we feel about whether or not we're doing it right. And God, help us to come to you to alleviate that, that fear and that concern, to find fulfillment in the desire to know that we're okay. God, help us to recognize that it is in your grace, at work in our lives, that we are justified, that there's nothing that we have to do to earn it or receive it, and that no matter how much we do, we can never earn more. God, we love you, and we're thankful for the way that you love us unconditionally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.